Good morning. I didn't know last weekend whether I'd be able to actually talk. I lost my voice about uh, Monday night in New Orleans as I was seeing my Kansas Jayhawks with my dad. What a great trip. And uh, of course, I lost my voice because, you know, from 50 yards away, I could see way more clearly than all these officials, you know, a couple feet away. <laughs> Had to let them know about that. And so uh, here we are. Last sermon series after 11 weeks in the book of Daniel. The book, uh, Daniel, when Babylon is home, how do we live? How do we pray? How do we look forward to the future when we're living in Babylon? And so today, I want to talk about the end times. Interesting sermon text for Palm Sunday, but here we go. There is a little line, almost forgotten, in the Apostles' Creed, in the Christological section, it says something like this, from thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. Right at the end of the Christological section, well, right before that, it's talking about Jesus, that he ascended into heaven, sitteth at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And so from thence, old word, you probably don't use it very much, is referring to heaven. And so from there, from heaven, he's gonna come to judge the quick, this is not talking about like Carl Lewis or, you know, Bolt. It's an old English word meaning alive. So he's going to come to judge those that are alive and those who have already fallen asleep, those dead. Now, if you've been in the church for any amount of time, you'll probably have heard really about the end times. You know a couple jokes, right? You know some jokes. I'm not going to uh, sort of go for cheap humor this morning, and you say, well, what if I can't spell Armageddon? It's not the end of the world or anything. So I'm not going to be one of those pastors that makes cheap jokes, you know, telling the end of the world jokes like there's no tomorrow. I'm just not going to do it. It's not. And so um, before I go to Daniel 11, 12, Jesus also talked about the end of the world in Matthew chapter 24. In Matthew 24, Jesus says this, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And you're thinking, because we've been through Daniel, you say, I recognize this from Daniel 7. Remember, Daniel is terrified. Daniel is wondering, what in the world is going on? The ancient days, this godlike figure giving dominion and honor and glory and power to the Son of Man. And so in Jewish culture, and this is belief in one God, how is that possible? So Daniel is terrified. What is this going on? And so Jesus is there as the fulfillment, saying one day, this is what's going to happen. Sun will be darkened, the moon not give its light, stars will fall from heaven. And so this is apocalyptic language that Jesus is using. And so you know that the next verse is never going to be something like this, but tomorrow will be mostly sunny with a chance of scattered shatters. No, this is apocalyptic language. And so in Matthew 24, Jesus gives what is called the signs of the times. How will you know? How will you know when Jesus is coming again and when Jesus is about to sit 
uh, and come from heaven and to judge the quick and the dead. So there's a, a writer that gives uh, eight of these signs from Matthew chapter 24, and he, he has a little bit of subtitles for them. Tricks and fears and hates and falls and missions. Tricks, don't let anyone trick you or deceive you. Fears, don't you be terrified. You will be hated because of me, Jesus says. Falls, many will be ashamed and drop out. Missions, but this wonderful news of the kingdom will be heralded in all the world. Sixth sign, tears, there will be great tribulation. Seven, clarity, clear as lightning shall be the coming of the Son of Man. You won't have to wonder, is Jesus coming now? All the world will know. But then also normalcy. As before the flood, alluding to the Old Testament, people were eating and drinking, so shall it be at the coming of the Son of Man. So these are eight of the signs that Jesus is getting ready to come at the end of the age. And I want to ask you, what do you notice about these signs of the times? Are these signs of the times intending to give you a secret playbook of history, a secret code, a cheat sheet for the end of the world, for future discernible events? No. The signs of the times are simple warnings for level-headed Christians to go about their normal Christian lives devoted to God in the midst of suffering and difficult times. And so Dale Bruner says like this, Jesus' sermon, Matthew 24, does not intend to create apocalyptic seers, but to create spiritual long-distant runners. And so Jesus doesn't say and, and preach about the sign of the times in order to make you, oh, what? What's happening in Russia? What's happening in Israel? What's happening in Ukraine? Or what happened with this ruler or that ruler? Rather, Jesus has given you these signs of the times to make you wise followers of Jesus, spiritual, long-distant runners. So in other words, apocalyptic literature is not given to you for you then to begin to trace all the little contours of political world history, try to read all the events of the Bible and match those with the Bible. No. Matthew 24, like the book of Revelation and like Daniel 11 and 12, is given to the people of God to make you a prepared people, to make you spiritual, long-distant runners. A long obedience in the same direction. This is what God wants from your life. There will be a time where things will get difficult for the people of God. Here's what you need to know, and here's how to stay faithful in hard times. And so, in Matthew 24, 4, Jesus is asking, is getting asked two questions. His disciples are asking him, what about the temple? And then, what about the end of the age? And so Jesus uses this opportunity to answer both questions at the very same time. And so Jesus uses the future destruction of the Jerusalem temple in 70 AD by the Romans as a way of foreshadowing the end of the age. The end of the age, Jesus says, will be like the destruction of the temple, which was this cataclysmic event for ancient Israel. And so Jesus is saying to his disciples, something will happen 
in Jerusalem at the temple, namely its destruction that can serve as a prototype or as a foreshadowing for the end of the world. And so I'm going to suggest to you that the same thing is happening here in Daniel chapter 11 and 12. And so Daniel chapter 10 through 12 is one last vision of a great conflict. And so the first 20 verses of Daniel 11, there's a historical prophecy. Remember, for Daniel, it's prophecy. But for us, it's history. And so Daniel looks, we can look back and look at, you know, the Persians and the Greeks, and we've done a little bit of that here in our series of Daniel. Daniel 11, 21 through 35, Daniel starts to talk about this guy, Antiochus Epiphanes, four centuries in the future. Remember, we've talked about him as well from Daniel chapter 8. Remember this guy? He was not a good dude. He banned circumcision. He ended priestly sacrifice, banned copies of the Torah, killed 30 to 40,000 Jewish people, and finally burned pig's flesh to Zeus right there in the Jerusalem temple, also known as the abomination that makes desolate, the abomination of desolation. And so then he, Daniel comes from talking about Antiochus Epiphanes, and then he starts talking about the king. In other words, there's going to be a king like Antiochus Epiphanes at the end of days. And so here you have a foreshadowing. There is going to arise at the end of the age a despotic ruler like Antiochus Epiphanes at the end of time. And so this is what we're reading about here in Daniel 30, uh, Daniel starting at verse 36. This is the same guy that Paul calls the man of lawlessness, 2 Thessalonians, or the Apostle John calls the Antichrist in 1 John. Daniel's going to say, it's like Antiochus Epiphanes, this tribulation at the end of the days. And so open your Bible to Daniel chapter 11. We'll be reading starting at verse 36. So you have in your uh, bulletin a bit of an outline. And so you can look, here are some of the figures of this king, some of the themes. This figure will magnify himself against every god. He will bow down to the god of violence and war, honoring the god of fortress. He's going to be godlike in his speech. The very essence of human sin is to want to replace God and stand in the place of God. So hear God's word from Daniel chapter 11. Verse 36 on page 890 in your pew Bible. Hear the word of the Lord. And the king shall do as he wills. He shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every God and shall speak astonishing things against the God of gods. He shall prosper till the indignation is accomplished for what is decreed shall be done. He shall pay no attention to the gods of his fathers or to the one Beloved by women, he shall not pay attention to any other God, for he shall magnify himself above all. He shall honor the God of fortresses instead of these, a God whom his fathers did not know. He shall honor with gold and silver and precious stones and costly gifts. He shall deal with the strongest fortresses with the help of a foreign God. Those who acknowledge him, he shall load with honor. He shall make them rulers over many and shall divide 
the land for a price. At the time of the end, the king of the south shall attack him, but the king of the north shall rush upon him like a whirlwind with chariots and horsemen, with many ships, and he shall come into countries and shall come into the glorious land, meaning Israel, and tens of thousands shall fall, but these shall be delivered out of his hand, Edom and Moab, and the main part of the Ammonites. He shall stretch out his hand against the countries, and the land of Egypt shall not escape. He shall become ruler of the treasures of gold and of silver, and all the precious things of Egypt, and the Libyans and the Cushites shall follow in his train. But news from the east and the north shall alarm him, and he shall go out with great fury to destroy and devote many to destruction. And he shall pitch his palatial tents between the sea and the glorious holy mountain. Yet he shall come to his end with none to help him. Before we get into chapter 12, it's where I want to dwell today. I want to go a little bit slower as we get into the first four verses of Daniel chapter 12. And I notice three things about God's people during those days. And the first is we see a troubled people at the end of the age. Look at verse 2 of chapter 12. It says, and there shall be a time of trouble such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. Jesus is probably alluding to Daniel 12 when he says this in Matthew 24. He says, for then there will be great tribulation, such as not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. So Jesus is saying the same thing as Daniel. At the end of the age, Troubling persecution and suffering, you will be, people of God will be a troubled people. This is saying the same thing as Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. We've talked about this right in the book of Job uh, last year. This is our first response when difficult and suffering trials come upon us, right? Don't be surprised. What? I'm always surprised when suffering comes upon my life. God, may it not be so. I'm never ready. I'm always surprised, it seems. But, and so what is the Bible saying again and again to the people of God? The Bible wants to warn you again and again and again. Be prepared for suffering. Don't you know that your identity is that of an exiled, sojourner type of people? And so be ready when the suffering comes. And so here's a spiritual principle. Do the spiritual work now so that you may be ready when the day of trouble comes. Do the spiritual work now so you might be ready when suffering and difficult days <clears throat> comes upon you. Because there's always going to be a temptation in life, is there not? I just want to throw in the towel. Long-suffering, is it really worth it? Righteousness, living in obedience to the commands of God, is it really, really worth it? All this trouble that I have, being close to Jesus, opening my Bible, being a man or woman of 
prayer. And so you come to the, the idea and the question at some point in your life, is Jesus really worth it? Is obedience to God really worth it? And so the Bible wants to tell you trouble is coming and there will be a day when all you have to rely on is Jesus. Will you be ready? And so for you teenagers out there, <clears throat> there will be a day of trouble and a day of temptation when you probably might go to college. And so the Bible wants to tell you, get ready now. Be prepared now. You go a little later on in life, midlife, there'll be trouble in your job, trouble in your marriage, trouble in your family. Be prepared now for the future troubles that await you. The person who has retired, there'll be a day when you'll be lonelier, experience more grief than you ever have perhaps in your whole life. And so what does God wanna say to you? Get prepared now. There will be suffering, there will be troubles, and God wants to spare you, God wants to prepare you, even as you know, you'll be a troubled people. So the end, you get prepared now. So it's a troubled people. Second, there is a known people. Look at verse one. It says this, but at that time, your people shall be delivered. Everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. You'll be spared. You'll be delivered. You'll be rescued. Everyone whose name is written in the book. Isn't that amazing? That God would take the time to know Suzanne Bryant, Scott Saracel, David Dahl, Becky Cavallucci, writing your name, that he knows your name. And so the amazing, most amazing truth about Christianity is not that you know God. Think about how you know God. God has to act in multiple ways for you to know him. He sends his son. He gives you the, this creation. He gives you the word of God. All of that is grace upon grace into your life. And so because you know him, what did God have to do? God first had to act. You only know him because God's gracious act to you. And so the greatest truth about Christianity is not that you know God, but that God knows you. He writes your name in the book of life. That's amazing, amazing truth that Christianity that we rally around. There's a story told about Russia's last czar, Nicholas II, there's a story that goes that he received a telegram one day telling him that the Russian fleet had been totally annihilated, totally killed. So many soldiers died in battle. And the story is told that he received the telegram, stuffed it back in his pocket, and went about his tennis game. Nicholas II, with all of the power, totally apathetic to his own people. Now think about how much bigger God is than Nicholas II. God knows you, and he cares for you, and he loves you. And so, so J.I. Packer in his classic book, Knowing God, you would think, oh, knowing God, this is about us knowing God. But he says this in that classic book. He says, 
What matters supremely, therefore, is not, in the last analysis, the fact that I know God, but the larger fact which underlies it all, the fact that he knows me. I am graven on the palms of his hands. I am never out of his mind. All my knowledge of him depends on his sustained initiative in knowing me. I know him because he first knew me and he continues to know me. He knows me as a friend, one who loves me. There is no moment when his eye is off of me or his attention distracted from me. No moment, therefore, when his care falters. And as you read the pages of the Old Testament, time and time again, at the lowest points for Israel, God again and again says one thing, I know you. I know you. Isaiah 13, 5, God says this, it was I who knew you. Where? In the wilderness, in the land of drought. King David is, is overcome by this realization in 2 Samuel 7. He says this, and what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord our God. It was Moses who, interceding on behalf of God's people, said this, yet you have said, O God, I know you by name. God says to Jeremiah the prophet, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Recently I heard a speaker talking about our identity in Christ and, and God is our, Jesus is our high priest. And the speaker said something like this, when you become a Christian, your name is inscribed on the heart of Jesus. He's your high priest. Your name is written in the book of life. He said something like this. So when you become a Christian, the father sees your name. He sees an absolute beauty. The eyes of the one person in the whole universe whose opinion matters to you finds you more precious than all the jewels that lie beneath the earth. He knows you like that. He sees you as an absolute beauty. He looks at your life and he says, all the, all the jewels that lie beneath the entire earth, you are more precious to me than that. Another writer said, being known by God is the Cinderella of theology. You go from being a servant, sweeping up the floors, putting the, the fire in the fireplace, to the place of honor at the ball, there's no earthly reason why the prince should look at you, should notice you, should set his affection upon you, but he does. I have a thousand or so hairs on my head, and God knows every single one of them. He knows your every wound, your every hurt, your every lost dream. Jesus is aware of every single wave crashing down at your life at this very moment. He knows you and he loves you. And so this knowledge that God knows me, it changes me. How? Changes you. Wow. Because you're invited not to be like the Cinderella at the ball who's being pursued by the prince, but then leaves the party to try to find your significance and your happiness outside of this relationship. No. You have the attention of the prince. His eyes are on you. His affection is on you. Your name is written in the book of life. 
Let me say this to you. Until you know that, at a soul level, at a deep level, your life will never change. You cannot be changed. Why? It's too scary to change. Because only a secure identity, being known by God, being loved by God, only when you know that, and only when you know you're secured, your identity is completely secured, being loved by God, being known by God, only then can you begin to look at all the sin so deep in your life, all the flaws so deep in your life, all these ways that you need to change and you need to be transformed without being completely undone. Only then can you handle the depth of your own sin and then begin to change and then begin to be transformed. You can't change what you don't know. And you won't be able to handle the depth of the knowledge of your sin without a secure identity based upon who God is and based upon God knows you, God sees you, God knows everything about you, and yet he sets his affection upon you. When he sees you, he sees an absolute beauty. All the jewels, so precious as they are, that lie beneath the face of this earth, God sees you as more valuable than all of them. God knows you. Your name is written in the book of life. And so we're a troubled people. God wants to prepare you. We're known people. God wants to change you. And finally, we're resurrected people. God wants to show you grace. Look at verse one again. Daniel chapter 12, it says, at that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people. Look, drop down at verse two. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above. And those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. So at the end of the day, is this angel Michael will arise, this angel who is biblically, in the Old Testament and the New, always a protector of God's people. So it's amazing and maybe a bit speculative to consider, was Michael the angel of the Lord who led Israel out of Egypt? Was it that Michael, was he the commander of the army of the Lord who met Joshua outside the city of Jericho? In Revelation 12, Michael the angel leads the battle against a dragon called Satan. So, and so Michael here is described in cosmic terms, in a cosmic way. And so four end-time realities are being described here in Daniel chapter 12. Four things. A great persecution, verse 1. A general resurrection, verse 2. Final judgment, verse 2. And finally, the eternal blessedness of the saints in verse 3. These are four great, unmistakable realities of the end times. Whatever else you know, whatever else people may have told you growing up in different kinds of churches, you get more or less of this kind of uh, sort of speculation about the end times. Here are four core truths about the end. Paul says to the Corinthian church, if it is for this life only that we have hope, what does he say? Then we are, we are of all men most to be pitied. In other words, the saying all good things must come to an end doesn't pertain to the Christian. It was Jim Elliott who said, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And yet, the great resurrection day is also the great division day. Jesus himself is probably alluding to Daniel 12, 
verse 3, when he says this in Matthew 25, and these will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. In fact, of the 148 stories of, told by Jesus in the Gospels, 60 of them, almost half, Jesus is talking about the final judgment. And so I wonder if Jesus recognized the truth that we often forget, namely, that only when real judgment is present can there be real grace. Did Jesus know a truth that we often forget? Only when real judgment is present in our lives can we experience real grace. Amazing grace, we sing. How sweet the sound, and sweet it is. But what's the very next line? who saved a wretch like me. In other words, only when we recognize our wretchedness is grace truly, truly sweet and amazing. This is how they prayed 100 years ago. American Episcopal Church's Book of Common Prayer of 1928. Listen to how people prayed 100 years ago. This is a prayer entitled, A Prayer for Grace. It says it like this, imprint upon our hearts, such a dread of thy judgments and such a grateful sense of thy goodness to us as may make us both afraid and ashamed to offend thee. And above all, keep in our minds a lively remembrance of that great day in which we must give strict account of our thoughts, words, actions to him whom thou hast appointed the judge of the quick and the dead, thy son Jesus Christ, our Lord. In other words, 100 years ago, people were praying, Lord, help me live in light of eternity. Help me live in light of the great day of judgment. Because when I live in the light of eternity, when I recognize the great judgment of God, I have to pray and I have to live by the grace of God alone. And so we will be in that day a people who are troubled, people who are known by God, but also people who by God's grace are resurrected. And so as we end our sermon series on the book of Daniel, let me remind you of three great themes as people get ready for the community breakfast. Three great themes in the book of Daniel, and they go like this. The sovereign rule and reign of God persists despite the appearances of history. And so we've learned in Daniel, God sets up kings, God brings kings down. And so what is my response? I can rest in the sovereignty of God over history. Second theme is this. When Babylon is home, understand your identity. You are an exile and a sojourner. As a Christian, what do I do with this world? I hold this world loosely in my hands. I am of the world. I am not of it. An exile knows that God never abandons his suffering and exiled people. And so I rest in his promises. I rest in his sovereignty. I rest in his promises. And finally, I can rest in his deliverance. The people of God will often be tested by a particular form of idolatry, that is, political idolatry. The fiery furnace, lion's den are stories of political idolatry, but there are also stories of God's great deliverance for those who refuse to bow the knee to the culture. And so when you don't bow, God will deliver you, if not in this life, in the life 
to come. And so what does Daniel teach us these 11 weeks? I can rest in his sovereignty when the world goes crazy. I can rest in his promises when I'm exiled and suffering. And I can rest in his deliverance when I refuse to bow the knee to Babylon. So here's what you know. You can rest in his sovereignty. You can rest in his promises. You can rest in his deliverance. God keeps his promises. God delivers his people. And God is sovereign over all the earth. And we rest in that.